This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. Happy Thursday. This is Let's Go There with Shira and Ryan, where we catch you up on the news of the day, pop culture, our crazy lives, uh, and so much more with fun music in between on Channel Q. Thanks for hanging out with us weekdays here. Coming up on the show today, we are breaking down what's happening with Israel and Palestine. Uh, It is so complicated, and we're going to just try to navigate that uh, so that you are informed on what's happening. That's coming up in 15 minutes. Plus, what does heteroflexible mean? That's at 3.35 p.m. Pacific, 6.35 p.m. Eastern. Let's get right into some what's trending this hour. Dr. Fauci shared another update on masks. Vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask outside. It would be a very unusual situation if you were going into a completely crowded situation where people are essentially falling all over each other. (laughs) Then you wear a mask. <laughs> but yeah. any other time, if you're vaccinated and you're outside, put aside your mask. You don't have to wear it. Okay, there you go. That was uh, Dr. Fauci on CBS this morning. We're going to be talking more about that later this hour as well. Uh, and finally, the Colonial Pipeline paid the hackers who shut down some of its networks nearly $5 million in ransom. Uh, Colonial operates the country's largest fuel pipeline. They'd been hacked on Friday, shut down all four of its major pipelines that served eastern and southeastern United States. And gas prices rose and some stations ran out of fuel. There was fuel hoarding, but hopefully no longer because the company announced yesterday that it was resuming operations. And that was What's Trending This Hour, What's Happening in Entertainment News, Ryan. Okay, so more Ellen news, and she's addressing her summer of scandal um, on the show. It's time for the T-Report, those pop culture stories trending right now. So after announcing that season 19 will be her last, um, Ellen sat down with Savannah Guthrie to discuss what she thought of all the scandal that surrounded the show. So apparently she's still surprised by the onslaught of attacks she's received and rumors of her show's toxic environment, but she insisted that that's not the real decision to call it quits. Here's what she had to say after Savannah asked her if she, uh, if she felt that she was being canceled. I mean, I really didn't understand it. I still don't understand it. It was too orchestrated. It was too coordinated. And, you know, people get picked on, but for four months straight for me, and then for, you know, for me to read in the press about a toxic work environment when when all I've ever heard from every guest that comes on the show is what a happy atmosphere this is and how what a happy place it is. There are probably people who are thinking, how could you not know? And if you didn't know, should you have known? 
I, I don't know how I could have known when there's 255 employees here and there are a lot of different buildings unless I literally, you know, stayed here, you know, until the last person goes home at night. It is my name on the show. So clearly it affects me and I have to be the one to stand up and say this can't be tolerated. But I do wish somebody would have come to me and said, hey, something's going on that you should know. Um, she also kind of said in that same interview um, that we didn't play, I have to say, if nobody else was saying it, it was really interesting because I'm a woman and it did feel very misogynistic. Thoughts? Um, so here's the thing. Uh, Ellen, yeah, did not respond to that in the right way necessarily. Uh, I think she gets to take responsibility and because nothing just happens out of nowhere, right? Whether you like it or not, whether it feels good or not, you're you have to take some sort of accountability around that. And and yes, she mentioned in this how she had done work on herself and all that, but it didn't seem like in it she shared any of her own um, apology or um, like her responsibility in it. She just was like, yeah, it just came out of nowhere. Nothing just really comes out of nowhere unless you're, you're completely it blind. It could, yeah. but it, I don't think in this case that it did because you've heard, we've heard the rumors um, a lot. And honestly... Celebrities, of course, are not going to know of the inner workings because when talent comes on the show, your staff is going to be, uh, you know, positive and happy and all these things. So, of course, celebrities are going to have that type of perspective. And I remember during that summer, there was like this, there was this whole entire kind of movement that her and Portia were trying to do to get celebrities to speak out on the behalf of Ellen. And it, it just, it... It's gross, and I think it's time for Ellen to go. So, well, she is going. I know, uh, and Which, we, we're wrapping go. things up. But here, uh, let's let's continue. I have something else to say about it. But. Well, we can talk about it. Yeah, a different time. we will. <laughs> okay, uh, let us know what you thought. Keep the conversation going at LGT Show, and um, we'll we'll touch on this a little bit later. Okay, coming up, tensions between Israel and Palestinians are sky high. What you need to know with Politico next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. Conflict between Israelis and Palestinians has escalated rapidly over the past week, but these uh, recent events are far from simple. Political, religious, and nationalist factors all play a role in the situation that's been brewing for, you can really say, over 100 years. Uh, Ryan Heath joins us right now, senior editor at Politico, as we dive in and try to break this down. Thanks for being here. Uh, it's a pleasure. So let's talk about what spurred this recent moment. Well, the immediate uh, cause was the likely eviction or the, 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 the beginnings of the eviction of a series of Palestinian families who've lived for generations in a neighborhood in East Jerusalem, which is one of the most disputed territories um, within Israel and the West Bank. Israel occupies it. Most of the world has never recognized Israel's right to control that part of Jerusalem. And there is a lot of obviously personal angst, but political frustration um, that Israel would try and evict these families. But there's, as always in the Middle East, layers upon layers of uh, context. And one of the other key elements is that you'll remember the Trump administration uh, was selling the idea that it was bringing an end to conflict in the Middle East uh, by brokering deals between Israel and some of its neighbors. But those agreements never involved the Palestinian leadership. They didn't really involve the Palestinian people either. And so you have uh, the people of Palestine cut out again and again from these processes. And while that doesn't justify any individual act of violence, it obviously makes it 
quite predictable that these are very tense situations and that at any moment things could kick off in violent terms. And that's what's happened this week. Wow. I mean, it's such it's 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 a lot. And I feel like the word you continue to hear about this is like complicated is the buzzword. Right. It just feels like there's so much information. And depending on where you get your sources from, it could be very biased. Right. Um, So can you kind of break down what is East Jerusalem and why is it kind of so sensitive in this case? Well, East Jerusalem is home to some of the holiest sites of, of all of the world's Semitic religions. So Christianity, Judaism, Islam. And obviously the people who uh, believe in those religions want to practice uh, that religion. They want to pray at these sites. And so who controls the sites and what access they give to the other factions and the other followings uh, really matters. Uh, and Israel uh, assumed control of East Jerusalem in the Six-Day War in 1967 and never gave it back. So this is very controversial when you make comparisons to other conflicts and other um, systems of government around the world. But obviously we know that Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014 and they occupied Crimea, for example. Uh, and a lot of people would argue that what Israel did uh, to East Jerusalem is no different. Uh, and then there are systems in place that really divide society there. So uh, when Israel occupies these territories, it does it through systems like severe border checks. Uh, there's a border wall between uh, the core of Israel and the West Bank occupied territories. Um, there's obviously huge disparities in how people live, depending on whether they're Israeli citizens um, or whether they are uh, Palestinians without a true sort of state and and, and and nation that is recognized by all the governments around the world. A lot of people would say that's like the apartheid system in South Africa. And then, of course, you have the really unique situation of the Jewish people, where they were persecuted for centuries. They had a huge difficulty in even establishing a homeland in Israel. Um, so they have very legitimate claims and fears to say that if they don't defend their territory, um, what happened in World War II and the Holocaust could happen again. And so when you put all of that together in one big mix and you concentrate it in a small, tiny, tiny piece of land like East Jerusalem, and we're really talking like a single L.A. or New York neighborhood when we talk about East Jerusalem, becomes a very tense situation. Yeah, uh, I mean, it, it is. And you actually really broke it down very well. What do people want when you talk to the regular average person on either side, not necessarily the extremists? Uh, mm-hmm. What do what do people want and what do they think will work? Well, I think on the Israeli side, I think first and foremost, people want security and the, the right to exist. Um, and so that is why it's been very popular for a number of decades now to have harsh security policies and why there is not a lot of tolerance for any violence on the Palestinian side. And you see what a lot of people around the world think are of overreactions, where Israeli uh, forces put huge bombs into what look like very impoverished impoverished neighborhoods um, and, and people who don't really have the weapons to fight back. Um, but for them, that's about survival, is, is the argument that the ordinary Israeli person would say. And I think that they they don't argue that severe discrimination needs to exist in daily life. They don't want to see sort of the children of their neighbors being blown up either. So I, I don't think there's a huge support for really punitive policies. But the, the re- real red line is how do we make sure we can continue to exist? And there's a lot of support for the Israeli government to go in hard 
and protect that. And then on the Palestinian side, uh, I think what has really been lacking, aside from sort of a functioning democratic leadership um, for most of most of history since um, Israel was created in 1948, is you have a real lack of access to basic services. You know, there are situations where people live near open sewers in Gaza. It really is like you are walled in. Like, it's very hard. If you live in Gaza, there's no airport to get out. There's no train lines to get out. Um, going through any form of border check is extremely onerous and, you know, subject to the whims of the Israeli Defense Force. And they might just never let you get to your job on a given day if it's outside of this tiny confines of Gaza. So giving economic opportunity and a greater sense of freedom to those people is something that would be very appealing to the ordinary resident of Gaza or other parts of the West Bank. Uh, and, and if some of those basic needs can be met, then the tension wouldn't be as great as it is today. So what are international communities saying? And like, uh, what's President, uh, you know, President Biden kind of jumping in and doing? Yeah, so this is where it gets really tricky and unusual, because we think of President Biden as being more popular around the world than President Trump was. Uh, but Israel is kind of the exception to the rule a lot of the time. So there are very few countries around the world that recognize um, Israel's occupation of East Jerusalem, for example. And it's often the U.S. and Israel alone at the United Nations. And you get maybe 190 countries sometimes voting against them when it comes to how this whole situation is being managed. Uh, so Israel and how they treat this situation is very unpopular around the world. Um, but because the U.S. is such a strong supporter, that's quite a blank check to the Israeli government to, to go in hard in these situations. And the way that's playing out in New York this week at the UN uh, is on the Security Council, which is the top body, the top decision-making committee at the UN. It's 14 versus one, where the other 14 countries, and that is ranging from Norway, which we think of as quite cuddly and cute, to China, which we obviously don't think of as cuddly and cute. That whole spectrum of countries is united against the US in saying, there has to be restraint from both sides. We have to call for a more comprehensive peace agreement and Israel should stop uh, bombing these civilian targets. Uh, and so the US is quite isolated there now. Um, and that's an awkward position for Biden because he's obviously selling this message to the world that America's back, this is a government you can trust and love, and the message doesn't quite work on this topic. You know, uh, the riots that are now happen happening on the ground and in, from people that we know on the ground, they're saying this is what makes this moment unlike others, where a lot of the younger generation, kind of like what we saw in the Black Lives Matter movement here, a lot of the younger generation are coming yeah. up and saying, like, we're not going to stand for this. This needs to end because this has been a fight that's been back and forth for decades. Uh, so I guess where do you think that will um, impact things? You know, the these these riots and the citizens on the ground. Yeah, it makes it very volatile is what I would say. So we have seen the, the pre-digital version of this before, where it was Palestinian kids throwing rocks at these well-armored Israeli forces. And that was going back into the, the 1980s and again in the early 2000s. And obviously it's different now if people are organizing these things on TikTok um, because it can be more organized, it can be more decentralized. But uh, by the same token, that also means it's a lot harder for the Israeli government to control or even the militant Palestinians, the ones firing the rockets from the Palestinian side. They're not in control of what these kids are doing on TikTok. And it's volatile because 
some people do let these passions go to their head. And so we've seen people on both sides. So we've seen Arabs uh, harassing and beating up Jewish people. We've seen Jewish people uh, harassing and beating up Arab people. And that it's very hard for any government to control, which is why you see so many of these other governments calling for restraint. They don't want the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, going off and, and shooting off his mouth and inflaming tensions. They obviously don't want bombs going on, on either side because the more all of that is happening, the more these individual pockets of people lose their tempo, lose control, take it out on their neighbours, and then you've got it happening at the very top level, like all the bombing, and then you've got all of this individual violence at the neighbourhood level, and it, and it does become anarchy when you're, when you're mixing all of that in together. Yeah, one final question. We have about 30 seconds left. What's the media's responsibility to make sure we're, you know, reporting unbiased, you know, resources for people that really don't understand really anything that's kind of going on right now? Because it, it feels very hard to discuss these, yep. you know, topics without seeming like one, you're on one side or the other. Exactly. And often in the U.S., people are afraid to present two sides because there's such a strong sympathy um, to the, the overall situation of the Jewish people. So I think it's important to hear and show two sides. And then I think if you're a consumer, you need to check a couple of sources so that you're not letting anyone show you a video that is actually from another country in another year instead of what's happening right now. And it's very hard for you as a consumer to judge that. So it's important to check a couple of sources and, and use your common sense. Don't just believe every single thing you've been told. Definitely. Well, thank you so much. This has been uh, great. It's really informative. <laughs> really we, informative. We're going to be continuing to cover this because uh, the weekend's coming up and we know there's a bunch of holidays, so hopefully things will de-escalate, but I don't know if that's going to happen. That was Ryan Heath, Senior Editor at Politico. Have a great day. Coming up on the show, CDC's updates on masks and what it all means for all of us. That's next. The CDC announced new public health recommendations on masks today. Are you ready with uh, what the future holds for all of us? No. Dr. Amesh Adalja is back with us, who's an infectious diseases expert. Thanks for being here again. Sure. Thanks for having me. So what's the latest announcement today from the CDC? Well, the latest announcement is that in almost every circumstance, a fully vaccinated person can refrain from wearing a mask. And I think you know, this is a science-based guidance that's based on the biology of transmission. And I think it's something very welcome and it's something that really underscores the value of the vaccines that we have. Yeah, my concern is there's still anti-vaxxers out there and they weren't following the rules or not planning on getting vaccinated. So if you mix that with people who are vaccinated, I think there's still a worry that people still want to wear their masks regardless. So do you think that's still we're still going to be seeing that is a lot of a large amount of people still kind of wearing their masks regardless of what the CDC is saying? That's likely to be the case. We've already seen that with the outdoor mask guidance, that there are still people walking outdoors that are fully vaccinated that are still wearing a mask. And I think that you can expect that because people got very attuned to wearing a mask. There, there are some there, there are concerns about that, that some people may have. But I think one of the, the most important points, though, is that if you're fully vaccinated, the virus really doesn't pose a threat to you and you don't pose a threat to others. So that's where the CDC guidance falls. And I think we're, as we get more and more people vaccinated, community transmission will continue to fall and these decisions will become easier at both the public health level, at a business level, as well as at a, uh, 
at an individual level. Are you surprised at how quickly we ended up at this point, which is great because just was it last week? I'm losing track of time. It could have been a month ago. But when uh, Biden said, oh, if you are vaccinated, you could have your mask off outdoors with people. It seems like it just happened yesterday and already we're here. Right, because that that initial guidance on outdoor masks was very cautious, was basically a baby step, a baby step in the right direction. And I think the CDC rightly was criticized for being very cautious, especially at a time when we're trying to show people that these vaccines are so good that they allow you to reclaim your pre-pandemic life and trying to use that kind of carrot stick approach of giving people a carrot saying, if you get vaccinated, you can do all of these things safe from the the risk of COVID-19, either getting it yourself or transmitting it. And I think the CDC responded pretty quickly to that criticism and to their credit and came out very proactively with guidance that is actually something that I think we can all applaud. Yeah, and this announcement from the CDC comes just ahead of um, Memorial Day and the 4th of July, you know, parade season, the fireworks. So are there going to be any type of guidelines you think that we would still kind of have to follow around these big holidays coming up? What should we kind of prepare for? Or is it just back to normal? It's very close to back to normal. I think that July 4th, Memorial Day 2021 are going to be more like the, their versions in 2019 than they were their 2020 versions. And I think that if you're fully vaccinated, I say just go back to your pre-pandemic life. And if you're not vaccinated, get vaccinated as quickly as possible. And, and I think that's what we're, we're kind of at this point now where we've got about 35 percent of the U.S. population fully vaccinated. Cases are down. We've basically decoupled cases from hospitalizations. We're not worried about hospital capacity. So the pandemic is sort of fading uh, from its public health emergency status in the United States, and it's going to continue to fade every day that more people get vaccinated. So I think we can look forward to things being back to normal uh, or very close to it by 4th of July. Wow. It's amazing. It's like it's, it was over just as quickly as it started. I guess I'm, I'm still wondering, because obviously the CDC made these guidelines, but like our stores, like if I go into a store right now, they're probably still going to make you wear a mask. Until June in California. State so by it's by state, state by state. Yes, okay, June 15th, cool. they're saying. But uh, Dr. Amesh, uh, masks will still be required in healthcare settings, businesses that mandate them or in public uh, transportation. Is that true? Yeah. So right now, you know, so if you're walking into a convenience store, you can't expect a convenience store clerk to check your vaccination status. So in that sense, operationally, you're going to see many businesses continue to still wear masks. You might see workplaces where people can be can have they have time to verify statuses. So if you maybe you work at a law firm or you work at a business, they might say, you know, we know that you're vaccinated, so you don't have to wear a mask. That might happen. Um, and also the same is true for public transportation or airplanes, because I don't think you want uh, flight attendants checking vaccine status because we already have enough acrimony on airplanes with masks, let alone uh, people asking for their their vaccine papers on a plane. So I think that that's going to probably be in place until more people get vaccinated. And I think that we'll probably see that dissipate sometime during the summer. But um, many states are now updating their guidance. I'm in Pennsylvania right now. They just updated the guidance to be consistent with CDC. So this likely will continue to be the trend. That was Dr. Amesh Adalja, infectious diseases expert. Thanks so much. Coming up on the show, how some Republicans are rewriting history about January 6th. What do we think about that? That's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. House Republicans at a House Oversight Committee yesterday seem to be uh, rewriting history. Basically minimizing or even defending the actions of those who stormed the Capitol on January 6th. Here are some of those uh, sound bites. Take a look. It was Trump supporters who lost their lives that day 
uh, not Trump supporters who were taking the lives of others. There was an undisciplined mob. There were some rioters and some who committed acts of vandalism. But let me be clear, there was no insurrection and to call it an insurrection, in my opinion, is a bold-faced lie. Watching the TV footage of those who entered the Capitol and walked through Statuary Hall showed people in an orderly fashion staying between the stanchions and ropes taking videos and pictures. You know, if you didn't know the TV footage was a video from January the 6th, you would actually think it was a normal tourist visit. That was uh, Representative Jody Heiss and Representative Andrew Clyde. Their words will go down in history. Um, <laughs> as um, Won't they, though? I mean, it's it's insulting considering people died, obviously, during that day. And it was far from a regular day, a tourist attraction day where everything was just peaceful and hunky-dory. My question is, what was he smoking? Because honestly, <laughs> what is, he on? when you when we all witnessed January 6th at the same time, collectively, the entire world, all eyes were on that moment to talk about this insurrection like it wasn't one and to try to paint it and rewrite this history like oh i can just tell a whole a completely different narrative it's just irresponsible it's a whole other thing that republicans are continuing to trying to do i just i just do not understand what the point is and why they are so okay and stuck with like this idea of trump being their king because that's all at the end of the day that's really what it is they're defending him. They're uh, defending every all these actions because of him. Yeah, I mean, uh, they're protecting themselves from losing power, and they'll do anything to do that. And the issue here is that we will never see any change and any progress by not acknowledging what's happened in the past or what continues to happen. Yeah, you don't create change by just being in denial. Yeah, I've never seen tourists, you know, slam windows and break into a Capitol. I've never seen tourists scream and yell, um, well, I wonder where everyone's hiding. You know, they were hunting, you know, our political leaders. They were hunting and looking for them. These people weren't just trying to go on a museum tour. Like, this is what they did. They they are honestly terrorists, if we really want to talk about it. Um, and the insurrection proves that. And it's just irresponsible to try to frame it any other other way and i i'm so honestly over republicans i i can't well it is the definition of gaslighting they're gaslighting the american public about what happened that day and not only that they're gaslighting all the other lawmakers and members of congress who are in the room that day who actually did fear for their lives unsure if they would see their families at the end of the day unsure if they're going to be able to do anything and continue to live. So, yeah, the whole thing is ridiculous. But let us know what you think at LGT Shows, where you can find us on social media. Coming up, how the federal government has decided to honor those we lost during Pulse nightclub shooting. More details next on What's Trending This Hour. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. Coming up this hour, what is heteroflexibility? We all want to know. It's a new term that's being thrown around. And of course, we cover all those terms here on Let's Go There. I was outvoted on this story. I have the bell now. <laughs> I was outvoted. Yeah. <laughs> How did this bell end up here? I've never had it. Because was there. Got it. Yeah. And the study that shows what parents can do for gay and lesbian mental health, that's at 425 p.m. Pacific, 725 p.m. Eastern. But right now, let's get into some What's Trending This Hour. A clip went viral of a verbal encounter between Representatives Marjorie Taylor Greene and AOC at the U.S. Capitol yesterday. 
Now, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says the ethics committee should look into it. Uh, the verbal assault and really abuse uh, of our colleague, Congresswoman uh, 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 AOC. <laughs> the It's so beyond the pale of anything that is in keeping with bringing honor to the House or not bringing dishonor to the House. It's so beyond the pale that you wonder, is this It probably is a matter for the Ethics Committee. Okay, so we'll see if they'll look into that. The Democrats have been trying, Democrats, I think it's like Democrats, have been trying to uh, push Marjorie Taylor Greene out for a while. She has been stripped of her committee duties, but yet she's still there. Now, the House of Representatives passed a resolution to make the Pulse nightclub a national memorial. There were no objections. It now goes to the Senate. But the House actually passed the resolution last year as well, but it died in the Senate after Senator Marco Rubio refused to support it. How can you refuse to support a national memorial? Why is it going to bother you? It's to honor those who lost their lives in a horrific, tragic incident. As uh, you know, on June 12, 2016, a gunman entered the nightclub in Orlando, Florida, and opened fire, killing 49 people and wounded 53 others in the LGBTQ club before police shot him. It was actually the deadliest mass shooting in America at the time. And the head of America's second largest teachers union is calling for all public schools to open five days a week this fall, pushing uh, forcibly for in-person learning over the uneven progress made by the Biden administration. And her comments come as the CDC is recommending that Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine be used in children as young as 12. And that was What's Trending This Hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? So Allie Brooke from Fifth Harmony is speaking out about her time in the super popular girl group. It's time for the T-Report. Those pop culture stories trending right now. Now, you may be thinking, okay, is it Norm- Is it the you know the black one, Normani? Or is it Camila Cabello? Um, no, it's not either one of those, to be honest. There's a lot of girls in that group that you probably just don't know. But Allie Brooke is one of them. <laughs> I know, but I literally have talked to friends and they don't even know who half the other girls are besides Camilla and Normani. How many more are there? There's three more. Wow, that's a good group. (laughs) No, it's five group. Well, um, Allie basically has a new podcast um, on YouTube called The Allie Brooks Show. And she admitted that she didn't enjoy her time in the girl group Fifth Harmony because she allegedly endured um, mental and verbal abuse. Here she is talking about it. I didn't enjoy it. I didn't love it. It was hard because there was so much going on, so much um, behind the scenes, so much toxicity, so much abuse, so much abuse of power, um, so much mental abuse, verbal abuse. And it's, it's just horrible. And to me, it's a shame because we were so big. You know, I should have enjoyed myself more. I mean, mm. it's kind of intense. I, I didn't realize, you know, we knew there was a drama. Camila Cabello, she kind of just abruptly left and became her own solo career. And then the kind of the, the group kind of fell apart after that. Um, but Allie, yeah, she did go on to say that it changed my life. I got to meet so many amazing friends. We did so much. But it's kind of the weird balance. It's a balance of being grateful, but also being okay with the fact that things were not okay for me. 
So, yeah, I guess she's going to be more vulnerable and open in her new podcast. Maybe y'all tune in. I mean, to be honest, I won't. I don't even know why I did this story, but I thought it was I mean, I, I I think it's always interesting when people who are in these, like, very famous groups come back and, like, tell all. But you're not that surprised because you're like, yeah, at, at, when you grow that quick at any level of your career, there's going to be some toxicity. Oh, for sure. Oh, for sure. And when you're young and a woman. And they were, I mean, they were put together on X Factor by Simon Cowell and all that. So it's, it was a rocky road, kind of a, like a, the, the styles, like the One Direction group. It's the same kind a of situation. Puppeteer. I don't know what that means, but that's your t- he report. He was the puppeteer. He was, you know, Yeah, all right. Well, let's just see more. I got more coming up next hour. <laughs> it's a metaphor. Coming up, there's a word for when you're straight but flexible. We talk about heteroflexibility next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. A new term has entered into our vernacular. It's called heteroflexibility. Liliana Morales joins us right now, a trauma-focused licensed psychotherapist. Thanks for being here for this. We love uh, looking at new terms. Of course. Thank you for having me. So let's get into what it is. How do you define heteroflexibility? Sure. So my take on heteroflexibility is, well, first of all, everything's that spectrum, right? And so um, I've had a lot of clients who are somewhere either curious or let's say they've come from a a place where there's a lot of shame, a lot of denial or repression. um, And so they're not necessarily sure where they fit in. And so if we were to think of that spectrum of sexuality, I kind of place it when I'm working with folks as somewhere between identifying as heterosexual and bisexual. Okay. And that can be someone who is identifying as someone who, let's say, um, most of the time is going for the opposite gender, but still has people in mind or is attracted to people occasionally or sometimes, whatever that variance means to that person um, of the same gender. So does this mean we should start looking at romance and sex on two totally different spectrums? Well, I would say it really comes down to, for my work at least, is the person and what they're seeing for themselves in terms of what they're attracted to, whether it's romantic interest, whether it is sexual interest, whether it's both. For some people that I've worked with, um, I've found that they they only experience, let's say, intimate romantic love, um, nothing physical. Some people, it is also just very focused on that physical sensation of being connected with another person. And for some people, it's a combination. Yeah, I, I we've talked about this before, actually. The other year, Dr. Chris Donahue, who, who, work, who works here on Loveline, said, oh, you're, you can be relationally one thing and sexually another. And I've always explained mm-hmm. for myself, like, okay, I'm relationally straight but sexually open. So should I start mm-hmm. using the term but are- heteroflexible? <laughs> what, Ryan? Say it. No, no, no. I'm not going to question anything. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> So what I have found, I mean, but the population that I've worked with, it's all individuals who have a history of some form of trauma. And I actually get a lot of folks who have come from either very conservative or religious households where if you are anything outside of binary or heterosexual, there's actually no room for that. And so as these individuals come to therapy, they're starting to figure out what words actually resonate with them. And one of my favorite 
pieces of the work is meeting someone exactly where they are. Some of my clients have maybe started to identify as heteroflexible, and that stays with them. And some people, that's their stepping stone to figuring out, oh, maybe I am bisexual, or maybe I am only attracted to women, or only attracted to men, or anything in particular within that spectrum of sexuality and attraction. Do you think certain genders are able to express their heteroflexibility more than others? Uh, well, there's so many layers, right? If we think about media and society and, well, just everything that we've seen in the world the last years, um, I think that what I have found is that uh, my female-identifying clients appear to have a slightly easier time, I would say, than my male-identifying clients when it comes to being able to play around with any sort of words or labels or identification. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. And I think we've we've talked about that before in terms of a lot of like internalized, I mean, homophobia for men mm-hmm. versus women. Uh, did you mention, just to be clear, the difference between bisexuality and heteroflexibility? Sure. So uh, I actually, when I was writing and like responding for the piece for Bustle that I was located on for this, uh, I was doing a lot of research because it was something that I was like, hmm, <laughs> where is this new place or this label on that spectrum? And I came across a lot of different experiences with people. And so what I found was that heteroflexibility seemed to be like, let's say someone majority of the time was only attracted or brought towards or bringing or going towards the, the opposite gender, but occasionally. And so that was that variance. Like occasionally, maybe I'm attracted to the same sex, the same gender. Um, and where I also found bisexuality was maybe on that next step of like, okay, it, it seems to be, you know, somewhere evenly distributed, if that makes sense. Yeah. I, I mean, I get it. But do you think this is kind of allowing or are, and we talk about this, or you mentioned this, centering hetero folks mm-hmm. in this queer conversation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was something I thought about a lot when I was going to respond to that piece. And I think the way that I really, I felt towards this um, through my clinical work, I found that the heteroflexibility for my folks who have been raised in households where there was no room for anything, that that allowed them to start to try to go out of what was expected of them from their culture or their family or their religion, their faith. Um, and that allowed some room for them. So I, I kind of saw it as creating a little bit more space for people to find out where they actually land on a spectrum. And for some people, that actually gave them the room to move towards being able to identify with being bisexual down the line. Whereas for some people, they just they're not they don't want to take that label. They don't want to take that step. And so I, I mean, I can totally see both sides of it. Um, but I find in my at least in my clinical work that it has help some of my clients start to get to their authentic self. Wow. Well, love that. Thank you so much for being here for this. We appreciate it. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. That was Liliana Morales, trauma-focused licensed psychotherapist. Check out her uh, story on bustle.com all about heteroflexibility. Coming up on the show, why some believe a Republican trans candidate like Caitlyn Jenner is actually good for trans people. Oh, we get into a debate on that next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. 
As more of the uh, trans community and LGBTQ advocates are coming out against Caitlyn Jenner's run for governor, I mean, at this point, is there even a point of her running? Because it seems like everyone's against her. And Gavin Newsom has done a good job at dealing with California. Uh, and so is this kind of a done deal? Uh, the thing is, some in the trans community who are Republican think her run is actually a good thing. There was an editorial in Politico.com why a Republican trans candidate is good for the trans community. And this was written by Barbara Minnie, who we actually reached out to and declined to be on the show. But it brought up a bigger conversation of and we've talked to log, log cabin Republicans about, you know, continuing to support the Republicans in this era where it is getting um so culturally divisive and when you're not supporting the rights of your community like why would you want to continue being in that group uh but it was an interesting stance on being trans and being a republican right now uh what is your take ryan do you think uh, a republican trans candidate is good for trans people i don't know much more else to say about this i feel like my thoughts have been very clear about caitlin jenner um i don't think she's good for herself i don't think she's good for anyone and and she's completely out of touch with reality and i think this is just another ploy to um uplift her brand and and she's willing to tear down trans folks to do that yeah, I think that her story does connect with certain people. We're not um, diminishing or undermining the idea of that. In the end, there will be a lot of individuals who are trans who have been Republican in the past and decided not to change their uh, politics once they transitioned. And that's what this person, Barbara Minnie, says. Uh, she says, when I went through my transition, I decided I was going to remain conservative you know, and continue being a Republican. And uh, like, we don't see a lot of trans Republicans. There are those out there, obviously. And it it becomes like a question of how can they continue to root for that side if that side continues to go against their community? And is it because there is a privilege? Are they are they're part right. of the privilege of it? Um. I, well, this may be a little bit difficult for our listeners to hear, but I'm just going to be honest. Um, anytime that I feel like a marginalized person decides to jump on the ship of the, the GOP or whatever that looks like, and especially when it comes to if there's if she's this person who wrote this article is a trans Republican. Um, it's interesting, right? If because I wouldn't we're not sure if they're a person of color, but I'm assuming that they're not. I think there's more of a privilege in being able to do that. Right. She's not producer Vanessa. She's okay. So yeah, I'm I'm gonna go with my talking point. She is not a person of color. She is white, and I think oftentimes people will rely on their privileges of existing and not having to deal with really any of the other uh, factors that other marginalized groups have to deal with. And I think that's also sometimes goes into the reasoning behind being a, a Republican, um, especially if you're a part of a marginalized group. I think. Um, it's it's really damning to even see people being able to stand behind uh, the GOP party when they do nothing but try to tear down and take away the rights of others. So it's interesting. In this, um, she says the writer uh, references Caitlin saying it was easy to come out as trans. It was harder to come out as Republican, uh, which 
I, I think is fascinating and says a lot. And this person also says that both of them transition later in life. Uh, this writer was 63. Yeah, Caitlin was 65. When you transition that late in life, most of your core beliefs and values have been com- become ingrained. It is easy to trade in one hat for another, but it is not so easy to trade in a lifetime accumulation of beliefs and values for those you are told <laughs> you should have. Which is a problem. That is, I mean, that is a whole problem of you existing in your own privilege and not even wanting to step outside. You just want to be like, obviously, I'm happy that that person found their true identity and they're living their truest form. And and that's incredible. Like, let's not negate that. But it's also really ridiculous that you this person and Caitlyn Jenner decide to just continue to live their basically their their lives as these kind of privileged folks because they don't have to really do anything else I mean they transition later in life their life is already fully established so it's not really like they're not the trans youth they're not the trans women being you know impacted by playing women's sports or being attacked on a daily basis because at the end of the day they can still afford their livelihoods there's so many other trans folks out there black you you know, and POC and, you know, even white that do not have that same fortune. And so for me, hearing that is just hearing another person write about the privileges that they have and existing in the world that matters more than their brothers or sisters and non-binary siblings. Totally. The question is, at a certain point, it needs to happen. If the Republican Party is going to be more inclusive, there needs to be some sort of representation in there. And if we want to move the needle with these bills, someone's going to have to take the leap and say, you know what? I'm part of this community. I'm Republican. And guess what? I'm going to now be that person. How do Republicans Republicans be more inclusive if they're constantly trying to what get I, rid of what the I'm saying of is others. there needs to be someone in there to move the needle so we could transition out of this moment so that they can then possibly vote for the Democrats against these bills but we saw what happened to Liz Cheney she's not even she's a cishet white woman we saw what happened to her she got kicked the hell out so what makes you think that a trans person is going to be able to step into an already very difficult situation just so Republicans can be like oh I have a trans friend because I think just like Delusional. What? I guess 15, 20 years ago, when gay marriage was completely opposed by many, all, both parties, unfortunately, right? Uh, And as we just became modernized and the world evolved, all sides saw that, even though there are still people that are, you know, out there that are against that, but most sides were pro gay marriage. I do think the the trans um, issues we are dealing with now and these bills in 10 years, it will be like, yeah, you're on the wrong side of history. And most Republicans will be for supporting the the trans community. They can't even get on the same page about wearing masks. So what makes you think that they're going to be able to get on the same page when it comes to any just same. humanity? You heard it here. I, I think in 10 years, we will be having a different conversation. It's unfortunate <laughs> it's going to take that long, but it's the way I, the cookie crumbles. No shade, Shira, but that's also coming from someone who is not a marginalized person. Besides just, being, a, I want a, it to woman, happen. You know? I'm just hoping. I mean, yes, I have hope. Doesn't mean it's not go- it's going to. But it's just the way the society evolves and how we progress. That's, I, that's just not how it works, in my opinion. Well, let us know what you think. At LGT Shows, where you can find us on social media. We love to hear from you. Coming up, more on Ellen's, uh, you know, Ellen speaking out about her uh, ending her show and what she thought about this attack on her over the summer. That's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. 
We talked about Ellen DeGeneres and how, of course, she announced yesterday that the upcoming 19th season of her daytime talk show will be her last, saying that the show was not a challenge anymore. She's moving on. And she also spoke about everything to Savannah Guthrie of Today Exclusively. And here's a clip, and people aren't really happy with her response. I mean, I really didn't understand it. I still don't understand it. It was too orchestrated. It was too coordinated. And, you know, people get picked on, but for four months straight for me, and then for, you know, for me to read in the press about a toxic work environment when when all I've ever heard from every guest that comes on the show is what a happy atmosphere this is and how what a happy place it is. There are probably people who are thinking, how could you not know? And if you didn't know, should you have known? I I don't know how I could have known when there's 255 employees here and there are a lot of different buildings unless I literally, you know, stayed here, you know, until the last person goes home at night. It is my name on the show. So clearly it affects me and I have to be the one to stand up and say this can't be tolerated. But I do wish somebody would have come to me and said, hey, something's going on that you should know about. Man, Ellen. So I did have some last thoughts. (laughs) And basically because you had said like, oh, there's no excuse. And the thing is, you have to realize in these um, work environments, like Ellen is kind of one of the last like old school talk shows. Right. I would say Dr. Phil and all that. And I even had this conversation with a, a producer who used to be at Entertainment Tonight for years. And like the fact is, and this is the reality, a lot of entertainment has been very toxic very toxic work environments. Not to say that's right, but that's like the reality. And, you know, Ellen was one of those that was probably built on that. And so it it makes sense that with something so normalized, you almost don't see it. See how bad something is because it's just so normal to to you and the company for so many years. Um, And I also think that because she's, you know, who she is, perhaps a lot of people didn't bring up the fact that this was happening, which is unfortunate. And that's also real. That happens too. This is not an excuse for him. I'm just saying like... It sounds like an excuse. It's not. I'm just saying like, I like, I enjoy talking about these things and looking at like, hey, yeah. what are all the sides of this? Like what could have been happening? In the end, we both don't even know what actually happened, but we actually do know from the do. people. We But we don't know from her side, her side, and she said that. And so... I think with one of these things, yeah. You, you. But Ellen's not going to sit there and admit that, yes, she knew and that she, just she didn't, didn't do anything. She's not going to admit that. She's going to make this look as know. good I for feel, her as possible. I feel like it's already looked bad. There's no way to make it look that much better. Uh, I think she was just being unfortunately honest not to say her honesty was the right thing and and I think that she could have said you know what I heard but then I thought oh well this is just what happens in entertainment this is what people say this is what people do and they could leave if they want to and that wasn't the right perspective but that's kind of how I was trained now I know better and it's unfortunate that that happened yeah, but the the idea of having to accept that just because of the fear of you not being able to have a job and said, you know, put industry because it's, you know, most of the times we deal with the the harassment, we deal with the uh, terrible attitudes because you're afraid that oh, yeah. you will lose your opportunity. And I think a lot of times the industry and the other uh, way the old school was and what Ellen and the team around her were basing that off of, well, there's someone else that could take your spot. And that's uh, that's not okay. And so for her not to really acknowledge the negativity that was there and kind of just base it off of, a you know, like the celebrities' opinions are more important than the people who are working for her to actually put the show together... 
feels a little tone deaf for me. Feels like she didn't mean her apology when she first came back. And it just felt like um, I'm happy to honestly see that door close. And I'm I'm interested who's going to fill her spot. Oh, yeah. It feels like she's still processing what happened and definitely in a place of still trying to understand how she got there. Which is, yeah, it, it is a bit of... Um, oh, you are a fan. I'm not. I, I interned at Ellen, but I mean, I was. Oh, that explains you know, it. Oh, yeah, there you go. That explains it. You know, it. I think that it will, It when she's been around long enough and when these uh, types of shows go, yeah, it leaves an opening for another person, another big show to come in. So it's an exciting time. And it's also a time for hopefully in entertainment, we start treating each other better. I'm seeing this new generation come in and I'm seeing this acknowledgement like there's no room for inappropriate behavior and bad treatment of people but um, hopefully we continue to hold each other accountable and create spaces that are positive and healthy for each other. So there you go. That's my hot take. Let us know what you think of it all at LGT Show again. We'd love to hear from you. Coming up, out lawmaker and marriage activist uh, is running for governor of Virginia. So we're going to tell you who and more details next on What's Trending This Hour. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. Welcome back to the show. And coming up, the study that reveals what can be done to help gay and lesbian mental health. Plus, uh, Seth Rogen's awkward meeting with Tom Cruise in the tea with Ryan in a moment. But first, let's get into some what's trending this hour. Nearly 2 million jobless Americans are set to lose their pandemic unemployment benefits early uh, with 16 states, including Georgia, Arizona and Ohio, becoming the latest Republican led states to announce they would seize providing enhanced federal jobless bene- uh, payments. So that's really unfortunate. I don't know what's going to be done if that's the case. Two million people without those benefits. Gay Virginia State Delegate Mark Levine, currently running for lieutenant governor in Virginia is basically making news because he's going to be the first out gay lieutenant governor if elected in any of the 50 states as well as the first out gay man elected to statewide office in Virginia. Isn't that amazing? Early asking. He said, I'm always fired up. There's a lot of injustice in the world. I've got a lot to do. He is currently serving his sixth year in the Virginia legislature. He said there's no doubt that representation mattered, matters, and he's been a longtime LGBTQ activist and is considered a pioneer in the marriage equality movement. He co-founded Marriage Equality California, helped launch the Valentine's Day marriage protests, an act of civil disobedience that caught on nationwide. He also co-wrote Washington, D.C.'s Marriage Equality Law. So check him out, Mark Levine. And finally, uh, seven members of the New York Yankees coaching and support staff have tested positive for COVID-19 despite being inoculated with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. That's according to the baseball team's manager. Six of the seven do not have any symptoms. The single-dose Johnson & Johnson vaccine was 72% effective against COVID-19. And uh, the two doses from bio, uh, but from Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna are both 95% effective against COVID-19. But that's an interesting uh, turn of events. Seven members with COVID. So just remember, just continue to be careful out there. 
And that was what's trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? Okay, so let's talk about my favorite person, Seth Rogen. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I don't know. There's just something about him that I just really, really enjoy. Um, but he just revealed a pretty awkward story about Tom Cruise pitching Scientology to him. <laughs> it's time for the T-Report. Those pop culture stories trending right now. So Seth Rogen had an interview uh, with Howard Stern. And he recalled a close encounter with Scientology back in 2006 when he met up with Tom Cruise. But that wasn't even the most awkward part of that whole experience. It actually starts off with him peeing in a Snapple bottle. Um, Here is a bit of that. I love that you had a pee so bad that you peed into a Snapple bottle to meet yes. with Tom Cruise. I, I, I stopped halfway up the driveway, kind of in the woods uh, above Sunset Boulevard, and I peed in a Snapple bottle in my car, um, and then I uh, sealed the bottle and, and left it there and went on to have a very absurd meeting with, with Tom Cruise, but uh, to get to the end of Yeah, so then as I was leaving the meeting, I was snaking back down the driveway, and I as I was passing the exact spot that I peed in, I noticed a red light in the woods and looked and there was a security camera literally pointed exactly where I was being in this. That's hilarious. (laughs) Now, here is the moment with the Scientology because I guess Tom Cruise was trying to sign him up, you know, take him to the celebrity building. Intrigue him. (laughs) Hours and not a few hours into the meeting, he goes, this Scientology stuff comes up, how weird he's looked in the press lately. And then, yeah, the word goes, and it's like with Scientology. He said, if you let me just tell you what it was really about, if you let me just give me like 20 minutes to like really just tell you what it was about, you would say, no fucking way. No fucking way. I remember being like, I, I remember, like, the wording was, I was like, is that a good thing to be saying? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if that was a good thing to be saying, to be honest. I, I, <laughs> I have the thing. Maybe so Tom if, Cruise knows what we don't. If you had a moment with Tom Cruise, you're like, you know you have an open-ended amount of time. Yeah. I kind of might take him up on that offer. Be like, yeah, no. tell me. I want you to tell me about this thing. I've Why read, not? You're I've there. Read too I'm many curious. celebrity encounters about their experiences with Tom Cruise, and he just seems really intense and a really weird. And he's someone that I never really want to have to encounter. But if you want to know more stories like these, uh, get Seth Rogen. Uh, oh my God, get Seth Rogen's new book. It's called Yearbook, where he's talking all about hilarious encounters with other celebrities. And so check that out because I, I, I mean, and also check out his other brand, Houseplant too. It's pretty cute. Yeah, he's doing good stuff. Yeah, he is. That's your tea report. Got more coming up next hour. That weed is working for him. I mean, it does, for sure. (laughs) The key to gay and lesbian mental health, according to one study, that is next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. A report released this week uh, by the at the American Psychiatric Association's annual annual meeting found that individuals whose parents were initially unsupportive of their sexual orientation but became more accepting with time were actually most likely to report symptoms of anxiety and depression. And joining us is the lead author of that report, Matthew Verdun, a California licensed marriage and a family therapist and doctoral student in applied clinical psychology at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology's Los Angeles campus. Quite the mouthful, but you're doing great things. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us more about this study and how you came to this conclusion. 
Okay, so um, I've been living with this study for over three years. So if I get overly technical, please feel free to yeah, stop me. This is now. regular folks listening. Yeah, so don't. Yeah, yeah. Just stop yourself now. <laughs> All right. So um, <clears throat> this study is this is actually my doctoral dissertation. And I had seen other studies that said that um, current levels of parental support are are they give better outcomes or lower mental health symptoms. So what I did was I wanted to see what happened over time. And I, I came up with four groups, and really that's based on if your parents are initially unsupportive of your gay and lesbian sexual orientation and become supportive, or if they're consistently supportive, if they're consistently unsupportive. Um, very few people actually go from being um, supportive parents to unsupportive parents. It does happen, but it wasn't big enough for me to study. So I actually looked at um, their mental health symptoms over the past two weeks prior to the study um, being conducted with some, some very short and simple assessments that were done and found that, <clears throat> yes, people whose parents were consistently supportive, so consistent parental support, no matter what, those people had fewer mental health symptoms for anxiety and depression than any other group. But interestingly, yes, people whose parents were initially unsupportive and then became supportive later, some of those people had significantly more mental health symptoms in the past two weeks than people whose parents were actually consistently unsupportive even. So I, what is the, the takeaway from this? Obviously, it's that just be supportive, right? Um, and, and there's been other research done that has generally linked negative responses from family to a higher probability of LGBTQ mental health issues. Uh, but you yep. said yours, this is different, though. So wh- what is the new takeaway from this? Well, the new takeaway, it, it isn't actually very new. The people in my study, when you look at the statistics, the people are actually younger and more educated And so those people are usually in some sort of ongoing educational setting or in a community setting where they're around other people. And we know that one of the keys to mental health, by the way, this study was done prior to COVID. So all this data was collected prior to COVID when we had a real world with real social lives and real friends that we could go out and see. And so one of the things that I believe and in future research would like to continue to study is what caused that? And I believe what caused that is their actual social connections, their community connections, so jobs, friends, other things that, that help support people's mental health. Other things that people could have utilized were like community centers or even things like your show. So for people who live in rural parts of the country that don't have access to like LGBT centers or a, lot, a large community of people, or even small towns that don't have any kind of like gay bar or bookstore or anything like that, being able to connect with a community online is supportive of those people. Yeah, I mean, for me, this wasn't kind of shocking because I think how I connected to it in the way of, um, you know, people who had less anxiety when their parents kind of constantly rejected them. It feels like a lot of queer folks kind of go through this moment of grief, of having to kind of deal with the fact of like their parents are never going to kind of be there in the way that they want them to be there. And instead mm-hmm. of like the the latter where people are kind of waiting for their parents to kind of maybe cross the line, it's kind of like you're holding on in that space. Um, and so like, I think for me, that's why I was like, oh, well this, that actually does kind of make sense in the sense of like 
Yeah, I would have less anxiety if I've kind of already dealt with the actualization that, that my parents are never going to accept me, you know? Exactly. Those, those people who know that their parents aren't going to accept them, they can go find other things. And I wonder if people whose parents become accepting, the study didn't ask this, but how accepting are we really talking about? Um, I think people oftentimes... I come from small town America and I'm also a little bit older, but I hear people when I would tell them about the experiences of people in rural areas, they were shocked and horrified at the things that, that happened. And I have friends and family that are still in the area that have always been supportive and loving to me, fortunately, but they hear these things still happening now. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that's just a small town America thing that happens everywhere. It's just that there are fewer people, and in large cities, those people who get rejected like that, it's easier for them to fall through the cracks and not get noticed because the community is so big, or they're able to find additional resources that might not be available in other areas. And also really so, informs how we're looking at the trans experience right now and all these bills and just all this lack of support. The implications of this are, is tragic. Yeah, they, the things that are done to the trans community are just horrifying. I mean, like the, this idea of bathroom bills, that was horrifying. And, and now we add on to that these new sports bills and things like that and bills to try and say that gender affirming care are illegal for minors. I mean, it's, it's just shocking and, and I can't imagine what kind of fear they must be living in because it's also important to remember in most states in this country it's legal to discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity well matthew thank you so much for doing this work um and for being here today thank you so much for having me that was matthew verdun who's a california licensed marriage and family therapist also from the chicago school of professional psychology Coming up on the show, it's Asian Pacific American Heritage Month, and we are highlighting leaders in the space. How one entrepreneur is changing how we look at Asian food. That's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. Now, our next guest recently spoke out about Asian food companies or restaurants describing themselves as authentic and why that's problematic. Kim Pham, co-founder of Amsam, joins us now. Thanks for being here. We read your piece and we were like, we got to get her on the show to share more about this. Uh, awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Can't wait, can't wait to dish. Yes. So tell us more first about Amsam, your company. I am one of the co-founders of Amsam, a proud and loud Asian food brand. Um, I actually run the business alongside with my sister, um, and we are first-generation Vietnamese Americans and daughters of refugees. And, and growing up, we actually grew up just south of Boston. We never really kind of felt fully seen by this quote-unquote ethnic aisle in mainstream grocery stores. I don't know if you've been to one recently, but they're super old school, really diluted, and we just wanted to build a brand that would really reclaim and celebrate the multitudes within Asian flavors and Asian stories. And so, yeah, Amsam was really born from that mission. Yeah, and I mean, you all have 
one rule, it seems like, that you refuse to use the term <laughs> authentic. And I think that's really interesting because your article really talks about kind of this um, this idea of the word authentic kind of only existing in Western civilizations and how it's kind of been mm-hmm. co-opted. And I, I, I even think about Bon Appetit and Condé Nast and what has kind of happened there when, you know, people started speaking out. The chefs of color started speaking out against the, the white chefs saying, guess what? I'm not being paid nearly as much of them, but they get to you know cook my my food for my culture and all these things and it's really bringing this kind of conversation on authenticity and 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 chefs of colors kind of getting the shine what what was your decision behind that authentic term why don't why don't you like it for us you know it was something that as individuals we had used for a long time in our lives but then actually when we started the business it was so often coupled with a very specific expectation of how food from the communities of color should look should taste and frankly should cost and we're like, hey, I know this is meant to be complimentary, um, you know, like, you know, when you say something is super authentic. Um, but oftentimes it, it, it's a burden, frankly, that only chefs and restaurants of color have to bear. There was actually like a, a report done where they looked at a ton of Yelp reviews. And it basically showed that when it comes to Western cuisines, Western cuisines are given space to be authentic, fusion, inauthentic, modern, you know, old school. But when it came to the cuisines of communities of color, authentic, quote unquote, was always, always tied to being kind of hole in the wall cheap. And we're like, we get it. Like we get that you want to preserve something of tradition. And that's why you want to use that word. But really, as we think about the future of these cuisines and these creators, we really have to kind of make space and make room for these folks to be innovative and be creative. And sometimes that might mean, you know, changes in recipes or in ingredients or technique, but really kind of that being part of a larger hopefully like, you know, steps forward on what it means to be, um, you know, or what it means to eat Asian American or, or whatever other sort of cuisine. So yeah, it's, it's a really, it's been a really interesting journey for us on, on that word. Wow. Yeah. And I'm sure a lot of different reactions, how can customers be better? So we're not feeding into all of this and being problematic. I think it's important to kind of understand why are you asking for authenticity, right? So I think there's a couple of questions that I ask folks ask themselves as they think about that word is like, one, whose point of view are you centering, right? Like, why are you asking for authenticity? You know, where are you coming from? What sort of power and privilege do you potentially have as a customer when you ask for authenticity? Because most of the time, a lot of folks are like, oh, I don't know if it's authentic because it might be too expensive. And like, what does that say about, you know, the communities um, and how we value their food? And then also, I think it's really important to just ask, like, who is explicitly profiting off of that work? Like, I think I'm really excited to see BIPOC chefs, you know, continue to play around with their cuisines. I'm really excited to see, like, third culture cuisine pop up. And I think that is authentic because these folks who, you know, have the expertise, perhaps grew up with these flavors, you know, have roots in these communities are the ones who can, you know, build on top of its foundation. And so I think, you know, the, the question of appropriation, which is very tangential and, and sorry, parallel to um, authenticity, I think that comes into play when you think about, hmm, you know, does this restaurant or does this dish, um, you know, truly pay homage and truly compensate folks of those backgrounds during this process? You know, it's nothing is like black or white, you know, with this sort of thing, but really just thinking about power, privilege, and and who's ultimately profiting. And then what about fellow chefs that you talk to that aren't Asian American, but yet who continue to make this food and profit off of it? Like, what's your message for your uh, 
community as well of uh, food makers, I guess, or creators. Yeah, for sure. It's so it's so complex. You know, I'm not one of those people who's like only people of those backgrounds can create their food. I, you know, I don't, I don't think of it like that, but I do ask like, hey, if you are like profiting off of it, how are you crediting and compensating folks of those communities? Like, but I do believe that there's a way to do it really respectfully and, and frankly, equitably. Um, and, and that's like involving someone every step of the way. So for, for us, for example, you know, I'm, I'm Vietnamese, but I can never purport to tell someone how to eat Korean food. So what we do is we, we involve for every cuisine that we build a product and we partner with a chef of that background and they're actually paid a royalty fee. My thing is if white chefs can make whatever they want, so should BIPOC chefs. I mean, don't exactly. be pigeonholed into and then on just the other making, side, yeah. you know, just making stuff that is just strictly from their own culture because that, that's, that's the, what we're seeing here. It's only you're only asking, you know, BIPOC chefs to make whatever they're used to making. Yep. And that's not fair. BIPOC chefs have that freedom as well. So I think that's yep, 100%. really the point here, you know. Well, uh, thank you so much for your piece and for being here today for all your appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Thanks so much for having me, y'all. That was Kim Pham, co-founder of Omsom. Check them out, omsom.com. Now, coming up, there's been a trend the past few years of influencers living together in a big house to create content together. Well, one of the houses right now is focused on the LGBTQ plus community. We find out more about that next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. There's been these influencer and TikTok houses popping up over the past few years where basically this is how it works. Social media stars, they come together, they live in the same house. Mm-hmm create content together, and then gain traction together. They kind of like raise each other. It's a great way to increase your followers and your views. Well, a TikTok house recently was created to be LGBTQ plus safe and inclusive. And the founding member of Pride House LA, Kent Boyd, is with us right now. Thanks for being on Let's Go There. Oh my God, hello. Hi. This Shira, hey. Hey, yeah, this is Shira, and then Ryan's there too. What up? <laughs> Ryan, the slay god. Hello, Got a fan. So, yeah. Kent, um, we're really happy that this finally happened because it, it doesn't seem like some of these houses are always uh, inclusive. Absolutely. I think representation is the most important thing. We want to give an image to the kids, to the people that yo, we can love whoever we want and we can still do the trending TikTok videos. It's great. It's fun. It's, it's, it's good to see that kind of in your feed or on your mainstream and how we kind of blew up to, I think was really, really interesting. And I'm like thinking it could potentially be iconic years <laughs> come down the road. I think it could most definitely be labeled iconic. You know, I think how I found out about you was Jojo Siwa, right? When she kind of was like doing her coming out phase and uh, moment. Um, And I I thought that was really interesting. How did that even happen in that that video where we're just like, oh, my God, did Jojo Siwa just come out? I know. Isn't it crazy? It's incredible. And that also recently just happened with a... A Disney star, too. I forget his name. Josh, right? From yeah, but we're not Disney, sure. Yeah, yeah the musical. Has yeah, musical. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm like anyway. still on the fence about it. it. Well, it's so, <laughs> well, it's so interesting to see how people can go online and use this platform as almost like if it were a diary journal entry or something where we can kind of expose things. With JoJo, like, it was literally all an accident. It literally just happened. I had this 
this sound bite that I wanted to use from Paramore. And it's like the, the, the song is now you're one of us. And we weren't really like, we kind of, we've known Jojo since she was young. So Molly and I, who met on, so you think we teach on dance conventions, we travel and Jojo and some of those dance moms, dancers, we saw touring, whether we were in Pittsburgh or in New York or LA, they would come and take class. So Jojo has been in our life for quite some time. And so going and kind of collaborating with her, was kind of something that we were so excited and looking forward to, to kind of merge our audiences and energy. And she had kind of, you know, we, we all kind of knew things and just it's not really our place to kind of um, publicly say anything about anyone else except for ourselves. So when it kind of happened, it kind of picked up traction organically. And then she kind of had the power to, you know, respond in any way to kind of uh, shift her audience. And she chose to be like, hey, like, yeah, this is my truth. I am, you know, a part of this community and then goes and like uh, becomes more of herself and then shares this wonderful journey with her girlfriend. And it's like, to me, that's why I'm like, this is so iconic. This is such uh, um, a progressive generation. And we have such a huge figure like Jojo kind of speaking out and and kind of being a leader in that and just being like, you know what, like labels aside, I feel like I can love whoever I want. And it so happens to be a girl right now. And I'm going to connect with these people who I feel safe with, who I know, Mm -hmm. and they're all a part of the LGBT community. So I'm going to I'm going to be like them. I'm going to be with them. I'm going to celebrate. And so I think Ken, that's what's so I, wonderful. I, we, we love that. So how does it work for people? Because, you know, we don't have uh, teens necessarily listening all the time. For people that aren't on TikTok. Sure. Like, how does a TikTok house work? I kind of explained it. <laughs> and like, is it how how old is everyone? Like, what's a day in the life of the oh, TikTok house? I'm not telling you our age. Oh, no okay. way. Never ask that's, a youngin their that's age. That's smoke and mirrors. But, um... <laughs> Uh, how a TikTok house works obviously is different for every house. We we really have been in the industry for a while. So I, I've I've been out here for a decade from Ohio, moved out here right when I was 18, did So You Think You Can Dance, and then transitioned into the Disney world where we met Garrett and then Jekka and Molly uh, have been together for eight years and they were married. And so we just kind of created this crew, this group. And Ma- Molly, Garrett, and I have worked many times professionally on separate jobs. So there's a sense of professionalism. We get there, we have, you know, Garrett and I collect videos and, and different things. And then yeah. Molly kind of is our kind of organizer and Jekka is our builder. And we just go to so town and I we mean, start creating content. It's really a team. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm it's, just yeah, waiting for my invitation. Company. Yeah, Ryan, Ryan wants I'm waiting for my invitation oh, to Pride oh, House oh, LA. It's, it's coming. Oh. It's, Coming in the mail right now. Thank you. In the mail, old school. I mean, you very know. old school. We're going through that vintage vibe. <laughs> Love it. So, and and finally, you know, TikTok. Oh yeah, we have we to do wrap that. But yeah. oh, it's it's. I, we'll, yeah. We continue talking about TikTok on I our show it, all though. the time. But yeah, we appreciate you for being here and for what you're doing because it's definitely needed in the space. Uh, that was a Pride House LA founding member, also dancer and actor Kent Boyd. Thanks for being here. Mm-hmm. Thank you guys so much. Big love. Yes. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. We're wrapping up the show as we always do with our Yes Queen of the Day. Yes, Queen. 17-year-old Nigel Murray is one of people's teens changing the world. That's featured in this week's issue. With the help of his parents... 
he saw a need after they got a new foster brother four years ago who didn't have the right clothes and everything to basically bring together clothes, toiletries, books, toys, and blankets and, and stuff them into duffel bags. They did this uh, a few years ago to give to a handful of foster children. It was a start of his nonprofit, Clothes for Kids, which now has delivered over 2,000 of these stuffed duffel duffel bags to local foster children Murray connects with through social service agencies. And, you know, he's 17 years old right now, but that's crazy. He did that when he was uh, 13. Thinking big. So we want to give a shout out to that youngster doing good in the world. Love that. Yes. And the University of Oklahoma's homecoming court has gone gender neutral for 2021. The student body and faculty selected Justin Norris and Reese Henry as their homecoming royalty instead of the homecoming king and queen. Oh, I I really like that. Homecoming royalty. Henry uh, said, I was kind of shell-shocked at first. And then uh, Norris, their date, said, it just made me feel very validated in my identity and loved by OU. While Norman and Henry were only recently elected as homecoming uh, royalty, they will have to wait a few months before uh, presiding over the homecoming football game as they have that um, that happens October 11th to the 16th this year. But so cool. I love this. We've been hearing about lots of homecomings, uh, breaking ground. We reported about lesbian couple who were named homecoming king and queen as well. So congrats to the couple. Oh, yes. Yes, queen. I'm waiting for that yes, queen. <laughs> Sorry. That, that does it for our show today. We appreciate you for hanging out with us as always. If you want to nominate anyone for our yes, queen, or just send us an idea to cover on the show, slide into our DMs at LGT Show. Coming up on tomorrow's show, we're going to be talking about what are neo pronouns, neo pronouns, and how do they honor identity, plus the psychology of why so many people hate eating leftovers, which I'm confused by because I love them. That's tomorrow. We're live here on Channel Q, 2 to 6 p.m. Pacific, 5 to 9 p.m. Eastern Live. Plus, if you miss any of our shows, we've got a podcast. Just go to the Odyssey app or where podcasts are available and search. Let's go there. We are sending you love and light. And honey, remember to slay. And stick around for Love Line with Dr. Chris where he's covering healthy fighting. That's next. All right now.